Wow. You. Okay. <laughs> Hal Jones doesn't like smirk or gag when she says that. <laughs> he should. Hey, Maniac. Hey, Maniac. Welcome back. We're back. We're like a virus that doesn't die. Oh, nah. <laughs> that joke doesn't age well. No. No. We missed you. We did. We had two weeks off, and we definitely missed you. We didn't really have any downtime. No. <laughs> we just did other crazy things instead. Yes. Oh, it's good to be back, and I'm really excited that we're back with um, my favorite episode of All Midsummer. Next, last year, why do I keep saying next year's model? I think that you have a, a thing against older ladies. That's what I think. No, there's a Billy Bragg song called Next Year's Model. So. Yeah, which is about younger ladies versus older ladies. Last year's model is a reference to last year's model of car, meaning not quite new, not quite spring chicken anymore. No, I don't think it's that. I just think I keep forgetting. <laughs> but that's what the title of the episode yes, is referring to. Absolutely. Annie Woodrow is last year's model. Absolutely. But not Mrs. Beverly. No. She's this year's model. Mrs. Beverly is this year's model. As soon as she showed up, I'm like, this is the one with the air horn. (laughs) So this is episode 51 of Midsummer Maniacs, and we're talking about season nine, episode eight of Midsummer Murders, last year's model. You got any announcements at the top that you want to make before uh, we dive in? No. 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 Just that we're back. And Hit the ground running. This episode was filmed in February and March of 2006. We're, we're into 14 years ago. <laughs> I know. It seems so current. Broadcast date was 17th of September 2006. 6.78 million viewers. Directed by Richard Holthouse and written by Dave Hoskins. Mm. I would say this may be one of the best written episodes of Midsummer. I think so too. And but I don't know that it's a typical midsummer. It's not an episode that I would tell somebody to watch if they'd never seen Midsummer before and I wanted to give them kind of a representative nope. episode. Uh, but that's kind of why I like it. Is it 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 sort of has the elements that I love about Midsummer, but then it has some new stuff that you don't usually see. It is a perfect ninth season episode. Yes. It's very um, much of a courtroom drama. Yep. There's some some time elements in it, and we get to see Tom questioning his own judgment in a way that is extremely honorable and honest and modest. Yep. You know, he he arrested the wrong lady, and he's willing to admit it and fix it. Yep. And he does. He does indeed. It's good. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. It starts with fireworks. This is quite the party they're having. Yes. And I'm not sure what this party is about, because when the police approach the house to arrest Annie and they see the fireworks, they say, well, that's a weird way of mourning the dead or something like that. It's almost like it's supposed to be a funeral, but it can't be. I think Lance is having a, my wife is going to get arrested party (laughs) (laughs) so I can be with my coochie cooch on the side. No, you know what it is? Maybe it's Francis's wake. It could be. 
It could be. I don't think it would be. But they say something at the very beginning about mourning the dead. One of the PCs says it as they're approaching the house. I don't know. Tom and the uniforms come up to the door. Annie Woodrow answers the door, and they arrest her for the murder of Francis Trevelyan. But we know, we know, because we know this show. She didn't do it. That Lance is smoking a cigar, so he has trouble. Yeah. (laughs) He's flashy, and he's got a stogie, so he's not to be trusted. Not to be trusted. And then we're 10 months later. 10 months later, which is a rare, it's very rare in any midsummer to do a time jump longer than a day. That isn't way back in history, like in somebody's childhood or, you know, way before any of the characters in the episode were alive or, you know. Yep. We jump back 50 years. We never jump back a week unless it's a flashback of a recreation of the crime. But to go 10 months forward is interesting. Yeah, it is. And the UK courts must be way more efficient than the US courts because if you were arrested for murder here, it would be way more than 10 months before you went to trial. And I'm like, is she on remand the entire time? I think she is. I think so. Yeah. And then she gets in that paddy wagon. Their paddy wagons are different than ours. Yeah, I wouldn't know. I really shouldn't call them paddy wagons. Yes, that's slightly racist. Really, it's mostly racist. It, oh, it, it just it's racist. is. Because <laughs> it's a reference to Irish police driving police vehicles. Yes. But when I learned paddy wagon, I didn't know that's what it meant. Yeah. But it's a, a, a bigger vehicle meant to transport a lot of criminals. And that she goes to court in that big white truck that has individual cells for each bad person. Yes. We also get paparazzi and press in this episode yes, in a way that we definitely. haven't before. This is the biggest thing to hit Costin. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is like big city court. It's not the little, you know, we come to investigate this crime because you don't have your own police in your village. This is like, you know, in town, in the big courthouse and everything that has a whole like eight parking spots. So there's a newspaper story here. The Costin Advertiser, the most influential paper in all of England, you know. And I got stuck on something. Of course you did, because it's printed something or other, so you have to look at it. It says that she's accused of her best friend's murder. Mm -hmm. Friends possessive. Do you possess your own murder? We would say of murdering her best friend. Yeah. You know, they're old school friends. Yes. They only say that about 45,000 times. Her old school friend. But I wanted to know if murder is possessive. (laughs) And then. (laughs) I would say the person who does it is the one who owns the murder. I would think so. But we would say her death. That's possessive. Yeah. My murder. You have to solve my murder. Can you possess things after you're dead? (laughs) This is so weird. (laughs) It's weird because I've never noticed it, but I don't know if it's even remotely important. (laughs) No, because the next thing in the next paragraph is far more important. Okay. So the the news story, they show it a couple of times, so I had to come back to my notes here and update them. The news story starts about Annie and Francis, mm-hmm. and then it goes in to a report about fashion students and running a fashion show and how it was different in the city than it is here. So instead of like Windows uh, documentation, they copied and pasted some news story about a fashion show? Yes. Okay. (laughs) 
Like they didn't actually think that that was one story and try to weave those in, right? No, 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 no. Okay, no, no. They it, it ends with one paragraph and then starts a completely different story in the next paragraph. <laughs> well, you're only supposed to read the first paragraph. And we meet the Trevelyans, including Ed and Sophie. Yeah, so we have John Trevelyan. Yes. He's the, the widower. And their daughters, Sophie and Ed. Ed never gets a full name. She's not Edwina or... Nope, it's just Ed. Uh, Eduarda or whatever she could be. <laughs> Eduardo. <laughs> no, Eduarda. Um, even in court, when the, um, the lawyer refers to the daughters, they say Sophie and Ed. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And John's mother, Gwen. Yes. Did you recognize Gwen? I did not recognize Gwen. How could you not have recognized her? Okay, who is Gwen? As soon as I saw her, I'm like, that's the char lady from Badger's Drift. Oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> she's the one that comes running out of the Rainbird's house. That's right. She's the char lady from Badger's Drift. Yeah. Now, she's gone up in the world. She's a different lady in this episode, but I kind of had fun imagining that she was the same lady. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, he was he was letting her clean houses and badgers drift when they're clearly well to do, the yeah. Trevelyans, you know, and his he old, works in the city. His old in mom business. is business. <laughs> his old mom is like cleaning houses and stuff, but now she gets to take care of Ed, so do you she's think, got a furry do hat. Do you think Gwen is John's mom or Yes. Okay. They even say so. Okay. It's it's his mom. And then we're whisked away to the Woodrose house. Right. The mansion, the manor. Oh, boy. It's like the house in um, The Wicker Woman. They may as well be the same character from different ages. Yes. Because he's a music producer, and he's flashy, and he doesn't have a whole lot of tact or taste. Lance Woodrow is tacky at best. His wife has only been in prison for 10 months, and he's already got a lady on the side. Well, he is, he's busy. He has the primal heat demo to deal with. And Hidden Agenda, the girl band. Yes, Hidden Agenda, the girl band. <laughs> also in this house, I don't know if you noticed, uh, there's gold and platinum records. These are all shorthand for you're a music producer. A right? successful one, yeah. One of the records has a, music, has a sign that says, I see. Like, it's like a road sign that says, I see. Okay. <laughs> like slippery when wet? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's a Bon Jovi joke. It, I think it is a Bon Jovi <laughs> joke. But then, beside these records, okay, including the Slush Electric Dance Mix, that's one of the records that he gets uh, a gold record for. Okay. So the band Icy made the song Slush? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> beside these two things... Do they also have Snowball? Is a picture mm -hmm. of an American astronaut. Like a signed photograph or just a picture or what? It's kind of like the, the astronauts do these portrait pictures where they're in their spacesuits. Right. And it has like a logo little. In insane. front of the blue background with the flag next to them. It's one of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> Naturally. I... Uh, if you're a music producer, what do you have in your house? Gold, gold records, platinum records, and astronauts. He does also have an award. He won Most Innovative Music Producer for 2005. Okay. That's a real thing that, that a music producer would have. A picture of an astronaut, I don't really understand. Well, and the house is supposed to be furnished with all these antiques that Jamie has got for them. Yes. And, like, he furnished the house. And yet there's all this, like... 
it's it's clear that you know they've come into money he's very successful and so he's trying to be lord of the manor but he's still tacky so He's got a hot tub and a red Ferrari convertible and then two beautiful vases. In he the has room. more yeah. than a hot tub. He is a jungle room. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of plants around that hot tub. Yes. yes. <laughs> Which are convenient for covering Felicity's nudity yes. when she gets out. So the newspaper also has on the front here when Jamie looks at it, Costin seeks new something in trans. Everybody opens the newspaper directly to this story. Right. And why is it not the front page story? That's what I wonder. Because it's all, the front page stuff is all about housing. Ah, okay. Which leads to the motive, which is why I like the the newspapers in this episode. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, because I noticed that the story wasn't on the cover, and I kept wanting to find out what was on the front page, and I never could catch it. Yeah. I thought, what could be bigger than this huge murder case going on in Costa? Well, it's kind of like a subtle... Uh, subliminal thing. They're talking about houses in the newspaper. Yeah, and, value of houses, yeah. and yeah, and there's a couple of stories about that um, yep. on the wall in the Costin Advertiser too. There's a story about a flood. Yep, the damages houses and a couple of others. So that yep. makes sense. Annie so on the dock. We get Lance Woodrow and his awful Bluetooth. Yes, which is like as big as your hand because you know he's fancy, right? He, he is indeed fancy and successful. Later, he has an iPod. Jamie's worried about meeting people about, sorry, about making enemies. He should be because he's the killer. Yeah. (laughs) And then we get to meet awesome Mrs. Beverly, the hero of the entire episode. Mrs. Beverly is fantastic. Yeah. She's living in her sheltered housing down the Costin Road. That's all the, that's all the address you need, by the way. Yes. Is the shelter housing on the Costin Road. down the Costin Road. Yeah. (laughs) And we get to meet the Cramners, Jamie, his wife, Tanya, their son, Danny, and the baby. Yes. Jamie is an antique salesman who somehow is connected to everybody and, yeah, is the killer, right? But and his wife is the most, like, I think they imply that because she's so busy with the baby and the other child that she doesn't notice that her husband's horrible. I guess. And, yeah, and then we've got Annie in the dock. We're in the courtroom. It's very filmic. We get to see... Up. Uh, Tom and his sergeants like in the hallway sometimes of the court and they refer to uh, I have to go to court tomorrow morning or I've no. been in court this morning. This is court. But this court. is court TV. Yep. This yeah. is weird wigs judge in the dock. Yeah. The whole bit. And we've talked about wigs before on the show so we won't go into that but this is the first time we actually get to see a courtroom and we get to see Annie come up from the basement where the holding cells are into the dock. And in, so in the U.S., I don't know if our international listeners will know this, but in the U.S., we do not have a dock like this. And the dock in this courtroom is actually quite nice compared to the dock in a lot of European courtrooms. You see docks that are cages. They actually have metal bars around them. And the accused sits in that cage during the whole trial. They yeah. come up into it and they go back down out of it. And it's the nice ones are plexiglass, plexiglass ones. but there's still yeah. a box. You're that, like a gerbil in a box. Yeah. And apparently um, in the UK, especially, there's been quite a big argument in the last maybe 10 years or so about whether that biases the jury. What do you think? 
you're sitting in a cage, but you're supposed to be innocent. And still, even with that suspicion that it biases the jury, the law in the UK is that the walls of the dock have to be more than seven feet tall. So they have to be raised above the audience and walled in. And the only way in and out of it has to be down through the holding cells. Wow. How did judge? Did you think the judge's wig looked like a brain? Uh. <laughs> Every time I saw him, I'm like, your wig looks like a brain. The judge is, the judge, like the prosecutor, are in a completely different television show. Oh, yeah. They're in like a serious cop drama. And everybody else is in Midsummer. <laughs> they are like... We're going to be on this Midsummer spinoff. It's going to be called Midsummer Law. (laughs) They are wholeheartedly in that show. So when uh, when Lance pulls up, Tom says, oh, that's that's uh, Lance Woodrow. That's Annie's husband. And Joan says, oh, isn't he the one with the uh, trying to push the bill ban? And I don't know what that's a reference no, to. I don't know. I mean, I tried to find out. Yeah. If anybody else knows, I mean, if you Google Bill Ban UK, there's a ton of things. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if that would be like a record label, uh, like, um, uh, like you know, we have the uh, ratings on our albums here about who they're appropriate for. Maybe he's talking about something like that. I don't know. I also noticed that in the prison, as well as in the holding cells, there's this obviously printed out on an inkjet printer and taped to the wall sign. This is a red designated area. Yeah, or a green designated area. And again, I couldn't find anything about UK prisons and color coding of areas. So, you know. I know that this is a red designated area. If any of our UK listeners have had any experience in prison and you know about the color coding, please let us know. (laughs) You don't need to admit why you were there. (laughs) It's okay. And Tom goes to court and then he he says, okay, Jones, you sit in court, keep an eye on. I think she's got um, an accomplice and I want you to keep your eyes out for anything suspicious. I got to go pick up Cully at the train station. Like, why is he doing that when he's supposed to be at work? Why isn't Joyce picking her up? Oh, well, Joyce is off at her mom's house because her mom has a broken arm. Which is, you know, it's nice. like, oh, I felt sad and I felt sympathy for a fictional character, <laughs> fictional broken arm. Her mom is fun, though. I know. Her dad's stodgy and a pain in the ass, but her mom's fun. Her mom's fun. Did you, when we do see Joyce on the other end of the phone talking to Cully as if Tom's not there, were you surprised at how nice her parents' house is? No. That it looks kind of Georgian and all wood paneled and beautiful? Oh, I didn't notice that, but that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is. Anyway. So before that is the weird slow-mo echoey thing. With Eddie. With Ed. Ed. Sorry, Ed. So Ed does not believe that Annie killed her mom. Everyone else does. Right. Okay. Ed wants to go to court. She's too young. So grandma's going to take her off and do something else for the day. But she remembers Barnaby and she looks back over her shoulder and looks at him, makes eye contact with him. And then it's the slow-mo and the echo. (laughs) And he later, when he's at the train station waiting for Cully, closes his eyes for a little bit. And that's what he sees. He sees Ed. So he, it's a lingering. Yeah, it's a lingering doubt, which makes you think that Ed knows something. But Ed doesn't know anything. Ed's hardly in it again. Like that's so much for Ed. 
Ed should have known something. That's my only critique. Well, there's a couple of critiques I have of this episode, but that's one of them is that she should have in passing said, yeah, I heard my mom talking about some piece of real estate going too cheap. Like it was theft. I totally agree for two reasons. One, it would have made all this slow-mo echoey stuff make sense. Mm -hmm. And two, it would have gotten back at her sister Sophie as all younger siblings should. Yes. You're listening to the Younger Sibling Podcast, by yes. the way. <laughs> if you're an older sibling, I'm sorry. We're smarter than you and we, we do better things than you. It's just a reality. My poor sister, I love her. She's four years older than me. And this is the epitome of younger sibling. But since I think I was about five, I um, until I was probably uh, 25, occasionally looked her in the eye and said, I'm smarter than you, and I'll always be smarter than you. My, my siblings are wonderful it people. It was a bad thing I did. Yeah, I shouldn't my, have done that. My, my siblings are wonderful people, but, but I am definitely the youngest of them all. <laughs> <laughs> And the smartest and the best and the awesomest. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say that. You're the youngest sibling and you fill the role I fill the role completely. Do you think Sophie's voice is weird? The entirety of Sophie is weird. I don't like Sophie. I don't like... Oh, she's an angsty teenager. She's angry. Is she an angsty teenager? She's like 25. No. I think she's supposed to be high school age, 17, 18. She's old enough to go to court. I don't like that she snaps at Ed. And I don't like that she gets involved with her mother and father and Annie's relationship. Yeah. But, you know, angsty teenager. With a very deep voice. Sophie, 100%. The actress playing Sophie, her name is uh, Rose Haskins, I think. No, Rosa Hoskins. Rosa Hoskins. She absolutely takes it to heart, the idea that when you're playing a character, you're supposed to think you're the center of the story because she clearly thinks she is the most important person in the story. There's somebody else important at this point. Yes. Now, listeners, cue this episode up and go to 17 minutes and 25 seconds. Okay. Okay? Jones is in the audience box in court. Yes. Prue Plunkett comes in and sits down at the end of the aisle. Yes. And the camera goes between Prue and Jones looking at Prue. And there is a dude sitting two down from Jones who looks like they pulled him out of the gutter and put him in as an extra. (laughs) His hair is noogied. His face looks like he's got bed face, you know, like the sheet wrinkles. His collar is all screwed up in his jacket. I I cannot express the level of disarray in this man. 1725. In my notes, it says, whoa, look at that dude. (laughs) (laughs) So you noticed him too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll put a picture in in the show notes. Okay, so let's talk Prue. Because that's when okay, she comes in. Just a tiny little bit before, before Prue. Okay. Bef- tiny little bit. Two things. One, Joyce has left food. Of course she has. A gross casserole. And this Midsummer episode then curses me. <laughs> because they order Indian food. They talk about Taj Mahal's always and, there. And all I want is Indian food. Why isn't that casserole in the fridge? I don't. Well, because it's Joyce's casserole and... 
The fact that it's been left out. Yeah. Second of all, on the front page of the newspaper that they look at, Twist in Homes Battle. So more, more home stuff on the front page of the newspaper. So now, now back to the court and back to Prue. Well, I really don't know. Maybe we should wait to talk about Prue. This is when we get to see Prue, the hippy-dippy, for the first time. She, she's not super hippy-dippy. She's got a whole lot of rings and stuff yeah, and layers. Yeah, I know that, but and, she's a... But it, doesn't Joyce call her the old hippie? Yes, she does. Uh-huh. But but she is pretty clear-headed. Like well, She's professional. Yeah. Yeah. Jones is not making private eye school because he is the worst at following somebody. It's like Prue is walking along the street and Jones is like... On his little tippy toes. And then let me just saunter up to the bar immediately next to you and order a Coke. And she she completely susses him out. Of course she does. Especially when he goes away, makes a phone call and comes back. Let me guess, you're a cop. The pub that she goes to where he, you know, does the cartoon sneak to follow her. Yes. I couldn't figure out the name of this place. The sign outside says Moreland Abingdon. Yes. But inside, the mem- the menus on the tables say the Argyle. Oh, the, the Moreland, <clears throat> the Argyle, and the fish s- restaurant across the street. I tried to find this location. Oh, you did? And I could not. <laughs> so Tom and Kali talking about Indian made you want Indian. Uh, the pub made me want Stilton and broccoli soup because that sounded really good. And clearly they've just got a shipment of, of avocados on the sneaky because they got shrimp and avocado salad. Yeah. Plus they've also got nachos with guacamole. <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> of blood avocados at that restaurant. Two thirds of their menu is avocado, <laughs> which is kind of weird for the UK. You know, it's not like known for avocados. Nope. Mrs. Beverly was not there when the witness support volunteer went to pick her up. So now nope. we're all worried about her. So Tom goes and sneaks around her place, can't find her. And then lo and behold, she's already at court. Jamie's giving her a ride. Yes. We know why he wants to give her a ride. Well, he wants to set her straight. He wants to make sure she knows not to mention how much she sold her house for. If Jamie doesn't give her a ride to court, if he leaves well enough alone, does he get away with murder here? No, because Tom still noticed the vases in the table. Okay, okay. Yeah. But he gets a lot closer to getting away with murder. Yeah. It's, it, it, it would have, they would have had to work harder to convince her yeah. that he was a bad guy. Yeah. But once they've convinced Mrs. Beverly about it, she's in. And what is he doing to her again? Let's wait. <laughs> Lance is in uh, waiting to be a witness in court. That's one thing they do get very right about court. And that you get called as a witness. You don't know if you're going to testify today or tomorrow or next week, but you've got to be there just in case. Yeah. There's a lot of waiting around. Yes. Right? Which gives these people an opportunity to mingle. Yes. Uncomfortably out in the room outside the court. He's got an iPod, which was not new at the time. They came out in 2001. No. So if they wanted to make him look kind of cutting edge, I don't think. This is. That wasn't really it. Right before smartphones. Yeah. Right before Apple iPhone. Apple iPhone hits in 2006. So. Yeah. Right before it. Georgie gives his testimony. Yes. Good old George. Yeah. That Francis was smacked in the head with a cast iron milk pan. Did you know what a milk pan was already? It's 
I assumed it was the pan in which you warm milk in. Yeah. It's a small saucepan, specifically yeah. one with a lip. Yeah, so you can pour stuff it out. out. Yeah. I didn't know what a milk pan was. Oh. And they didn't show it until after. When, when Annie is having her flashback bad dreams, mm-hmm. Francis is killed with a cast iron skillet. Oh. So we're led to believe that Annie doesn't even know what the murder weapon was. Yes. Right then you should know that she's innocent. Her dream tells you she's innocent. Is there a moment where you thought Annie was guilty at all? No. Even when I first watched it. Mm. Okay. So the first time I saw it, you see Tom arrest her and then it goes forward 10 months. And I thought, oh, she's innocent. If it had gone back 10 months to like the, the investigation leading up to it and he's finally getting her, he's finally got what he needs. It's taken 10 months to get the evidence to get her. Then maybe she was guilty. And I thought she looks a little bit too much like Rebecca De Mornay. Oh, to be innocent. I <laughs> I get this. But she's innocent. I yeah. get this in the episode of Poirot mixed up. Oh yeah. A lot. So there's an episode of Poirot called um, something about flowers or something, where she and her fiance are at this house. They're at their aunt's house or something. And this other woman arrives and the other woman dies Mm -hmm. and she's on trial for it because she served sandwiches. Yeah. Shrimp salad sandwiches. And I thought that in that episode, Cyprus, that's the name of it. I thought she was guilty. Yeah. But she's not. Right. The the real But they're both structured in the same way of the somebody's on trial and then it's either a flashback or forward to how you got to that point. And well, they, they do a good job of, in both of these episodes, the person who dies and the person who's accused of killing them doesn't really mind that they're dead. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're in that tug of war. Yeah, nobody really misses Frances Trevelyan. I, I don't know why John liked her at all. Apparently she was hard to love, according to Ed. Yes. <laughs> Such a weird thing for a little girl to say. My mom is hard to love. Was she inaccessible emotionally, Daddy? <laughs> like, why would you ask that? Uh, we're just not given a reason to to like Frances or not to like Frances. She's not really a character. Yeah. I mean, if anything, she's kind of admirable because once she knows that Mrs. Beverly has been ripped off, she's going to do something about it. That's true. She she is, well, like, what do we know about Frances? She does a lot of charity work. Right. And when she found out about a crime, she was going to tell people about it. She's going to do something about it. She was going to get it fixed. Yeah. And she's been friends with her old school friend all this time. She maintains friendships. Yeah, so... It's not exactly the worst woman in the world. No, she's not horrible. No. I mean, there's lots of other characters in these episodes where it's like, oh my God, can somebody kill her yet? But I just wonder if she was easy to love. (laughs) (laughs) Not according to Ed. Nope. So Mrs. Beverly is the key witness, right? Yes. She says that she saw Annie walking to the Trevelyan's house that night. She didn't have a coat on. She nope. didn't have gloves on. No. Clearly she was up to something because she had, they had had the party at, um, at Annie's house. Yes. And then she's walking to the Trevelyan's house yeah. late at night. What is Mrs. Beverly doing up? What is she doing peeking out of her window at somebody walking by in the dark? Well, the security light comes on. Oh, okay. Because this is when she lived in the big house. Yes. She was still 
No, she wasn't. No, no. In the, no. She, she was living. What? Why is Annie going across by the old folks' home? Maybe she wasn't out of her house yet. Okay, so the whole plot is about Mrs. Beverly's house, right? She yes. has a very beautiful house that's worth half a million dollars. Which is... She wants to move into a smaller place. Absolutely so, believable right. story. So Jamie helps her liquidate all the stuff in yes. the house and sell the house to move into this nice little condo, this sheltered housing, right? I love how... She, Mrs. Beverly, is completely okay with dying, too. She's like, Once you get to oh, a certain well, age, it's you know. time. <laughs> okay, but wait a minute. There's a problem because, so Jamie kills Francis because she knows about him swindling Mrs. Beverly out of all this money, right? I think, I think the only way it could work is if the sale hasn't gone through yet, but she told her about the sale going through. And that's why her house is between... And that's why she's, yeah. that's why Mrs. Beverly is still in the big house because the, not the, I, I always get them mixed up. There's the barrister and then there's the other kind of lawyer. What's the other? Solicitor. There's the solicitor. I get them mixed up of who's the litigator and who's the behind the scenes. Yes. But the behind the scenes, whichever one it is, comes out and tells Tom, Mrs. Beverly hasn't shown up. And remember, she's moved. Yes. So, so she's, she's moved into the condo. Moved. Yeah. Since in the 10 months. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think Jamie's arranged for the sale of the house, but it, but Mrs. Beverly hasn't moved yet when which, Francis is killed. Which kind of makes sense. Mrs. Beverly would be excited to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, I'm moving. Yeah. I've sold my house and Jamie helped me and yeah. all this stuff. Okay. I don't like the motive that they try to create with Annie. I don't think they would have went to court with that motive. There's no physical evidence that Annie was in the house. I don't think this would have ever went to court. Other woman who is obsessed with someone else's man is a trope that is all too often actually used in reality. Yes, I, I do understand that. And it's one more thing in this episode that I think is beneath Midsummer. Yeah. I love this episode, but that motive... Bothers me too. Yeah. The motive of she was so obsessed with this man who maybe didn't even like her back that she killed his wife and then insinuated herself into the family in a, in a, a guise of supporting the family over the loss Which that she caused. Which we never see. No, we never see any sign of her except when she drops the trifle in the kitchen and he helps her. It's clear that they're friendly. But there's no like, oh, his hand touches hers and they look at each other and they almost kiss and then go, no. No, there's none of that. No, there's none of that. Now, I can believe she did have feelings for him. Embryonic feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had, may have had feelings for her too, but not to the level that would have driven her to kill somebody. And all that was shown, all that is shown to us is any familiarity that you would have with like my friend Joshua's, any one of your Joshua. friends, yeah. yeah, any one of your friends who came over, we were having a party and they were helping me out and we were laughing about me dropping something in the kitchen. We would have done exactly the same thing, exactly, right? And there's nothing to it, yeah. But you know, woman gone, woman gone crazy over love, which is in the Poirot episode yeah. too, is a bad motive. But there must be more to it that we don't see. There's, yeah, there there's enough to, to it that Sophie confronts Annie, an adult, 
at a party or maybe her mother's weird wake. We don't know. <laughs> and says, you know, you you like my dad and you need to get away from him. So yeah. there must be more. There must be more, but we're not seeing it. And in the end, we do know they do love each other. So they must have been giving it away a little bit. She was shy and little girly around my father. Just coquettish, apparently. Wow. Ooh la la. I don't like Sophie. I don't like Sophie at I, all. We know that now. <laughs> we know that. Let me go back a little bit and tell you something interesting here. So we've talked a little bit about Jamie. Yeah. Jamie Cramner, who's played by Jamie Glover. Did you recognize Jamie Glover? No. He plays James Lacey in the Agatha Raisin show. Oh, that's right. That's right. He's a little bit older. Why does he testify? Because I think he's insinuated himself in the case. I think, I think, I think those are the mistakes he makes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think he wants to be part of the case because he wants to know whether he's a suspect. Yeah. And by the time he's insinuated himself, he's made himself a valuable witness because he knows both of the women. Yeah. And then I he think, can't really get out of it. I think he screws himself here. What else about Jamie? So Jamie Glover yep. is the son of two famous parents. Okay. His dad is Julian Glover. Okay. Who played Henry Trace in Badger's Drift. Oh, yeah. Julian Glover is, Julian Glover is he chose wisely from He's the bad guy Crusades. in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's Maester Picel in Game of Thrones. Yep. He's in Star Wars. His mom yep. is Isla Blair, who played Dr. Jane Moore in Death and Dreams, the other red-haired psychiatrist that they insinuate Tom has the hots for. Hmm. Glover is the connection. <laughs> We're going to come back to this red-haired psychiatrist thing in a little bit. We do need to talk about that. But, yeah, I thought that was interesting because we've got the housekeeper from Badger's Drift, and then his dad was in Badger's Drift. I just thought that was kind of funny. Yep. Mrs. Beverly is played by Thelma Barlow. Okay. Who uh, UK listeners will best know as Mavis Wilton. She was in over 1,100 episodes of Coronation Street. That's where I know her from. Mm-hmm. She was on Coronation Street when I watched Coronation Street, which I did in high school. Yes, I actually had friends. <laughs> I did have friends. And yet. <laughs> and you see, Coronation Street was on in Canada on the CBC channel I watched. On Sunday mornings, it only showed that once a week, Coronation Street's a daily show. Yeah. Showed it before Star Trek. If they only ever showed one episode a week, they were going to be 10,000 years to get caught up on Coronation Street. Absolutely. I was way behind. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But I started watching it because it was British and interesting and stuff. (laughs) Well, and... um, Barbara Young, who is uh, John Trevelyan's mom and the housekeeper in Badger's Drift, she was in our first That Looks Like a Horrible Movie. I bet Mark's seen okay. it for this week. Are okay. you ready? Okay. So this is Barbara Young. Yes. Barbara Young, who plays Gwen Trevelyan, John Trevelyan's mother in this episode, was in a movie in 1985 okay. called White City. White City? Mm-hmm. No, I don't remember. It's Pete Townsend's movie, oh. named after the album that he released, yeah. the solo album. Yeah, okay. And it's a fictionalized version of his childhood. I've heard of this movie. I haven't seen hey! it. Hey, one point for me. <laughs> yep. Woo-hoo! 
I know. I I knew White City seemed familiar. Yes. I thought for sure you would have seen that. I I know. Because Pete Townsend yep. from The Who. I know. He wrote it. He directed yep. it. I'm a Pete Townsend fan. Ah. No. One point for me. Do, do, do. I'm, I'm excited about that. Okay. <laughs> so when, uh, when Tom and Jones get the hint that, okay, this is about Mrs. Beverly, right? Yes. Because they see the table at Lance's house with the two vases on it. Like, I've seen that somewhere before. And Tom goes, I know where I saw it. I saw it in Mrs. Beverly's nice house before she moved into the little condo. They go and talk to her. And she says, no, no, no. Jamie did. It, it was fine what he did. He, he helped me sell the house for all this money, and yeah. he got rid of all the antiques and everything. He was so helpful. He's the, the son of my best friend. Yes. Uh, you know, he's I wonderful. I avoided all these taxes. Stamp duties. Stamp duties. Which Jones then says, that's a bunch of malarkey. That's gobbledygook. Yeah. But I don't know why he says that, because stamp duties are real and would have applied. I don't know. So a stamp duty in the UK is a tax that the government places on legal documents. Yeah. And usually the stamp duty is applied to some kind of transfer of assets or property. So if you sell a bunch of stocks, yeah. there would be a stamp duty applied. And it's like there's a piece of paper that says you stole, you sold them and made money. And that's where the stamp duty is applied is to that document. That's when you pay the tax yeah. on that transfer of property. But there's a subset of them called the stamp duty land tax, which is a tax that went into effect in 2003 for the transfer of land or property. Okay, so it would have been it, eligible it for this. It absolutely would have applied. Maybe these taxes like like real estate closing costs and things like that are thrown inside deals a lot of the time. Or maybe it's kind of like death duty and that if you transfer property in a certain way you don't have to pay as much and so he kind of like got her to sort of give him the house and he gave her the money for it so that he didn't have to pay that either way it wouldn't have been her paying it, it would have been him yeah so he saved himself that money yeah i think that's the malarkey pit bit maybe he's saying oh he's saying he saved you money but really he saved himself money they and he already ripped you off on the house anyway okay we love Miss Beverly for amazing, a number of reasons, including the air horn we'll get to. She says, we bought the house for 85. Yeah. And it's just in that one line, it tells you so much. Yeah. About her and her husband. Yep. And the life they had. But then she says, you're suggesting that Jamie is diddling me. Yeah. <laughs> I had to kind of stop at that point in time because... To scrub the image of Jamie diddling Mrs. Beverly. This shows her age. Yeah. Because diddling uh, it was slang for cheating or swindling. Yes. Right? But diddling now has a different slang meaning, which is more upsetting than just to have sex with somebody. More often, it's referred to as masturbating, especially of a woman. Oh, okay. So there's an even worse picture for wow. you. Wow, okay. <laughs> Jones doesn't like smirk or gag when she says that. <laughs> he should. He should be like, ew, no, I wasn't saying that at all. <laughs> Jones is better than that. Of course he is. Oh, he'll want to smother me. Why would he why would he stab me or shoot me? 
He'll smother me. He knows I'm I'm close to being dead anyway. Why have we not talked about Mark Thomas yet? <laughs> the reporter. So he's the reporter for the Costin ad- advertiser. And Jamie's sidekick. Jamie's sidekick. Did you notice Tom at the Costin advertiser when he goes to talk to Mark Thompson? Thomas? No. He almost knocks over a piece of the set. <laughs> well, there's big stacks of newspaper everywhere. The... The the desk that's supposed to be at the front of the where you come in. Yeah. Tom almost knocks it down. <laughs> it teeters. It teeters. I didn't notice that. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cost an advertiser. Why don't they advertise for a non wobbly counter? Yeah. <laughs> they got a wobbly wall. Then there's all this back and forth. So then we've got Prue testifying. Yep. And sucking up to the judge and. She says that John and and Annie were in love embryonically. Embryonically. Which I looked it up. I could not find that phrase anywhere. Embryonically in love. I couldn't find embryonically referring to any kind of emotional thing. I don't know why she says it. I don't know if it's supposed to mean that they had like an umbilical cord attached no, to each I think other. It, I think it's just so early in the stages of love. Oh. That it's embryonic. I see. But she was just saying that she thought they had such a deep connection. Oh, I know. It's there was electricity between them. So I Did the electricity affect the embryo? <laughs> so I heard embryonically meaning like like at their core. No. Like at their essence they was, were in love. I think the word that she meant to use was nascent. Yeah. Okay. So it was an early phase yeah. of love and with one another. Okay, yeah. that makes a lot more sense. Then we get the exciting scene. Yes. Joe's is in the cupboard. This is pretty exciting. It for, is. For, like, this is almost a car chase. Yes. <laughs> it's better than a car chase. Somebody might die. Jamie comes in, he confronts Mrs. Beverly, and he's like, whatever, and he leaves, and everybody's like, huh. And then he comes back. It's like, oh, it's on now. Yep. She's got her air horn. She's got her finger on it. She's yep. ready. And I love that they just... They just go to a, a scene of the outside of the house, and then and then everybody off. running, <laughs> and and you hear over the radio, "Okay, Jonesy, we got him." Yep. <laughs> and they make a mistake. What's the mistake they make? Right here, they make a mistake over the radio before he goes back in the cupboard. One of the uh, uniforms outside calls him Sergeant. Oh, Sergeant Jones. It is a mistake. He's coming back. Yeah, because but. Barnaby hasn't heard yet. And there's all these little jokes within the episode about how he's not a sergeant yet. Nope. Right? And he's waiting for the letter. Yeah. And hoping that it will come. And then one of the uniforms gives it away. Calls him sergeant. So maybe they know already. I don't know. But then Barnaby. Barnaby lets him says, know. Says, I just found out he is a sergeant. Yeah. Passed his sergeant exam. So then we have the weirdest scene of all time. You put, who are the weirdest collection of people you could put in the end scene of this episode? <laughs> Prue? Yes. Cully? Mm-hmm. And her father? Mm-hmm. And, and they imp- make it uncomfortable. And it makes the implication that Prue is in love with Barnaby. Not just implication. Like, it, there's no other way to understand what she says. And then Barnaby goes, by the way, give this lady a ride home. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Before that, though, when the note gets passed in court that somebody else has confessed, right? Jamie has confessed. 
to killing Francis. They say, somebody else has confessed. Mrs. Woodrow, you're free to go. Yeah. John stands up, clearly relieved that Annie is not the killer. Yes. And he doesn't say, well, then who did it? Wouldn't you say who did it? I would think so. Wouldn't you want to know right now who did it? <laughs> I, I, I would. Who confessed? Yeah. But instead, no. Yeah. It is nice, the courthouse scene, the two courthouse scenes, step scenes that are nice, are one, when Annie's husband comes up to her and she's, she's like, like, you know, that's not going to happen. You we know, that's know. not going to happen. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. And then he goes off and distracts the paparazzi who have no interest in the fact that the defendant and the widower are standing there practically kissing. They're face to face. And none of the press are paying any attention. They they leave in the same car. Nobody's paying any attention. But he he does. Because Lance is such an attention hog, I guess. Yeah. So the father, the, the widower mm-hmm. comes up John. and says, I'm sorry. I should have stuck with you the way you stuck with me. Yeah. I thought that was nice. Yeah. He seems like a good person. And somewhere Ed's doing a little dance. Told you, told you. Oh, yeah. She's never going to let Sophie forget this. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about Prue and Tom. Okay. So we've already mentioned Dr. Jane Moore from the other episode. With killer children. Yeah. Her her kids are murderers. Death and dreams. Because I do get these two episodes mixed up. Because for a little while, at the beginning, I was like, wait a minute. Does Sophie kill her mother? Because she's worried about... Her dad and her no. mom. Like, I, I thought for a second, and then I watched the end, and I was like, oh, yeah. So Dr. Jane Moore and Prue Plunkett are both red-haired psychiatrists who are very good at their jobs. They're very smart ladies, and they've all they both had some kind of involvement in cases in the past where Tom has met them before. Yes. And when Cully mentions Prue to Joyce, she knows exactly who she's talking about. Yes. And she knew exactly who Dr. Jane was, too. And there's a third one. There's one coming up. There's a later one. Yeah. We could talk about how there's this implication that, you know, Tom flirts with these ladies or whatever. I don't think that's the case. I don't don't think. I I don't care about that. Nice. Yeah. To ladies. And I think he's a nice man. Yes. And he's honorable and very intelligent and in a position of authority. And that's attractive. Yes. Right. So I'm not surprised. Well, and I think I think women sense all this and are comfortable around him. Yes. And so I'm not surprised that there are ladies who get all goo goo eyed over him. Yes. But I don't I don't for a second think that the writers are trying to imply that he ever gave goo goo eyes back. No, no, I, no. I don't buy no, any no, of that. No, no, no. However, in this episode, it bothers me more than it does in Death and Dreams because Cully is there. And because Cully is there, it's different. And I'm, I'm having trouble explaining this, but I think there's this kind of implication that Tom is out in the world because Tom has a job and Joyce is at home, right? Mm-hmm. So Joyce does volunteer work and all that stuff. But Tom has a life that Joyce is not part of. As a policeman, he meets people and works with people and talks to people all the time that she will never meet. Yes. And... Prue is one of them. So Joyce apparently knows of Prue. I think she must have seen her before. She wouldn't call her hippie or whatever. 
Um, Tom talks about his cases all the time. Right. But Cully doesn't know about Prue. No. So Cully seems to be super suspicious of her, especially in that last moment. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like they're trying to say Tom is a man of the world and has relationships and acquaintances that Cully and Joyce are not part of. And Cully is seeing that for the first time. And she's kind of like, huh? Somebody loves my dad? Cully would know. I, of course she would know. But Prue could have just turned and said, you're really lucky to have such a great dad. He's a good man. Yeah. And that would have been fine. Yeah. But no, we have this reference to love. And driving home. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, I, I'm, it's It's like the episode ends on this high note and then there's like, what? Yeah. Why that, did you have to do that? That it didn't need to be there, and what needed to be closed was the loop between Ed and Sophie, where Ed goes, "I told you so." Yes, we just we just cut to like a coffee shop with Grandma and Sophie and Ed. And Ed's going, "I told you, I told you," <laughs> doing her little dance. <laughs> so speaking of Prue, Prue Plunkett is played by Siobhan Redmond. Yep. She's also um, in Queens of Mystery. She's Aunt Jane in Queens of Mystery. Yes, she if is. If you haven't caught that Acorn show, you should. You should. It's super good. Super good. But she is our second. That movie looks awful. I bet Mark's seen it. Okay. Okay? Now, Siobhan Redmond is in this movie. Yes. Uh, I would like to read. I'm going to hint at you. I'm going to read the tagline first. Okay. Okay? And then, if you don't guess it, I will read uh, the short synopsis. And then, uh, if you don't guess it, I will tell you who the stars are, and then I'll give you the title if you still don't know. Okay. Okay? It's from 1986. Okay. It's right in my wheelhouse. The tagline is, Dr. Lauren Slaughter, Professor, Emissary, Hooker, Target. (laughs) No? Okay. Nope. You don't have it yet. Let me read you the the little synopsis. A brilliant researcher in London who works as a high-class hooker in her spare time becomes a pawn in a dangerous political game when her latest client, a nobleman who is negotiating an Arab-Israeli peace treaty, falls for her. How Why have I not seen this movie? <laughs> She's a professor, but also a prostitute. With all your free professor time. And he's a nobleman, but he's also you know, a negotiator for one of the most important peace treaties in the world. Oh, I have to watch this, after- this movie this afternoon. It stars Sigourney Weaver and Michael Caine. It's called Half Moon Street. Half Moon, yes. Yes. And Siobhan Redmond, who plays Prue Plunkett, is a secretary in this movie. I've seen this movie. <laughs> but you couldn't remember it. I okay. think I still get the point. We Because you couldn't tell me what the name of it was. We went through a Michael Caine thing in high school where we watched every Michael Caine movie we could. Mm-hmm. So we watched a lot of them because mm-hmm. he's in a lot of movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a great so, actor. Yeah. Yeah. Half Moon Street. Yeah. Because, you know, all the researchers I know, when they're not being professors or researchers, they're prostitutes on the side. And it had Sigourney Weaver, who we are also quite enamored with. Yeah, she moonlights at the Jasmine Escort Service, where she has more control over men and money than she does at the office. (laughs) (laughs) Yet another movie, I'm sure. I don't even have to watch it and re-guess that completely does not understand how academia Academia works. Oh, God. No, 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 no. (laughs) Academia is far more boring 
and at the same time far more political and interesting than any movie lets it on to be. It's one of those uh, it's one of those uh, uh, vocations where the lower the stakes, the bigger the politics. Yep. You will see people have epic battles spanning years over a nice office chair. Yeah. The lower the stakes, the bigger the politics. Anyway, we have a corpse. Yes, we have we a corpse. Can't really have a favorite corpse. Can't really have a favorite corpse. Our favorite corpse is the only one. Congratulations, and we don't really Francis. see that corpse all that much. No, not really. She's just on the ground. She's not on the slab or anything. No, no. Uh, after the credits. Oh, well. Besides Ed doing her, I was right. Dance. Yep. Mm-mm-mm. I don't know if uh, for, uh, Annie and the widow get in, involved. They'll at least be friends, I think. I think they're, they're friends. Yes. Do you think Lance and Felicity are going to stick it out? Uh, I don't think Felicity cares. <laughs> I love Felicity. I think she's fantastic. I do, too. Uh, Tanya Cramner, Jamie's wife, is the angriest person in the universe. Well, she should be. Because her husband is a murdering uh, thief, and now she's left alone with a baby and a toddler. And it's said once in the episode, and never sort of filled in, but somebody says he's a womanizer. Yeah, so probably good riddance. Yeah. To bad rubbish. But, you know, and maybe her and Mrs. Beverly can come to some kind of agreement about the money so she's not completely broke or whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Prue's going to be fine. Mrs. Beverly's going to be fine. Yep. They make Samantha Flint, who is the prosecutor, played by Josette Simon, look like she might be a recurring character, but I don't think she is. Again, the judge and her are in a completely different show. Well, and Josette Simon has played a judge and a barrister in like half of the roles she's played. Yeah. She, for some reason, she yeah. is the courtroom actor and she's very good at it. Yeah, she does great. I, I, it seemed completely familiar to see her in that role. Yeah, because she's been in that role in other shows. Yeah. You know, what we haven't talked about is Annie's lawyer, Marcus Bramwell. Yes. He's played by Guy Henry. Okay. Now, Guy Henry has been in a ton of period things. Yes. Because he's tall and statuesque and kind of uh, looks aristocratic. You know, he's been in a lot of like, um, oh, uh, Sense and Sensibility. And, he's not you know. given a lot to work with here, but no. he does okay. But as an actor, he's got deep deep skills that are not expressed in this role. Okay. And I know it because for two years, he hosted a horror show called Dr. Terror's Vault of Horror. Okay, Dr. Terror's Vault of Terror, fantastic show. Vault of Horror. Vault of Horror. Do you remember what he looks like in this show? No. Dr. Terror's Vault of Horror. He plays Dr. Terror. Whoa! This guy I remember. Yes. <laughs> I could not have placed him. That's Guy Henry. Wow. He eats up this. He should dress like that in the courtroom. <laughs> With the wig on, it would be really impactful, don't you think? Yep. Yeah. He is a giant devil. Yes. <laughs> and he wore that makeup for every episode. And he is just eating up scenery with Dr. it. Dr. Terror's Vault of Horror. Starring Guy Henry. 
I love it. I love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. All right. That is last year's model. Yes. What do we have next? Next. We're we moving have... on to season 10, right? Yes. Yes. Next, we have a goodie. We Everyone have... is a goodie. We always say that. Ooh, the next one's really good. Because every 10, midsummer is good. Episode one, Dance with the Dead. Oh, yeah. The airfield. Yeah. The clothing. It's creepy. It's weird. The insane lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the first one either. No. No. Oh, all right, maniacs. Yep. That's last year's model. We will see you next week for episode 52. 52. <laughs> We're getting close to 63. So 63 is our next milestone. Why? Because 63, we're halfway through. Oh, unless the next season comes out before then. That's not going to happen. (laughs) That's not going to (laughs) happen. Well, if you are interested in following us on all the social medias, we're on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and all those cool things now. Please get a hold of us. Uh, if you didn't listen to our mini episode, the last mini episode, go back and listen to it. A mini episode number seven. It was a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. It's a bunch of listener us. comments. Yes. And uh, it uh, made a lot of people happy. And, and I have uh, a little request. That's I kind of made it in the mini episode, but I yeah. want to reiterate it. And that a lot of people have said, oh, it would be fun to have like t-shirts or something. And so I'm coming up with ideas yeah. for stuff to go on like shirts so right now I have Socko Fox. Yeah, so we and we have Brian Clapper sweatsuit. Brian Clapper sweatsuit as ideas to go on shirts, and I've got uh, an image uh, in mind for each one of them. But if there are other kind of inside maniac jokes that you think would be fun to go on a T-shirt that wouldn't violate the Midsummer Murders, you know, copyright kind of stuff, yeah, then. Um, uh, yeah, send them our way. I would what, love to have your ideas what of we're trying to what little inside jokes would be fun. It's if we sold merchandise, what it would be. And the idea about selling merchandise is we would do it to raise money for something. Yeah, yeah, it would go to charity. It's not for yeah. us to make money off of. Yeah. I just think it would be fun for you know all of us out here now who understand that we are not the only ones who love Midsummer to also have some swag to express yep. our, our connection to Absolutely. one another. It would be fun. Swag. So. Swag, swag. If there's a little inside joke that you think would be fun, put in some kind of graphic. From the podcast. Yeah, from the podcast. Let us know. Yeah. All right. Until next time. Bye, maniacs. Bye, maniacs. Queen's favorite TV show, but not her favorite movie. Apparently, the Queen's favorite movie is Flash Gordon, according to Brian Blessed. Well, she watches it every Christmas. I believe Brian Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> you think he's hanging out with the Queen watching Flash Gordon every Christmas? I would pay for pay per view of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know that UK show where you watch people watch TV. Yeah. Yes, that would be the best. What is it? It's not. Couch or sofa, or house party, or so- tube, something, something. I don't know. Couch tube. I can't remember the name of <laughs> All it. All the now. American people are like, "What are they what are you talking-, talking about?" <laughs> uh, I want to put a link to it. Um, but I, yeah, I, I would pay premium dollar to watch Queen Elizabeth and Brian Blessed watching Flash Gordon together. 
Absolutely. Or really anything. <laughs> a commercial. I don't care. Anything. Just the two of them sitting on a couch together. Because she'd be all squeezed up against the arm of the chair because he's a gigantic man. And he'd be leaning over talking to her with his giant mouth. And she would just be and backing up, every, backing up, Every time he up. stood up, you'd have to take a drink. Yes. <laughs> 